Hey everyone, welcome back. This is your host, Brian Bostock, and this is Chronic Failure. Today we'll be talking about Agent Orange and the Rainbow Herbicides. And I know what you're thinking. No, this isn't a name of a traveling rock band from the 70s. This is, of course, a heavy-duty family of chemicals used in a military tactic by the United States during the Vietnam War. Today's episode is going to be very interesting. It hits close to home being a veteran myself. Um, thank you to all of those veterans out there listening. I appreciate it, and I appreciate everyone else for tuning in as well. With that being said, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. I hope you enjoy. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased fivefold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are on the threat of toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Because the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. So we've all heard it before. There is cursory knowledge of it in the cultural zeitgeist of the 1960s. And it's the antithesis of the peace and love movement. Agent Orange is one of a class of color-coded herbicides called the rainbow herbicides. The naming of this particular herbicide agent orange is named after the orange stripes painted across the barrels which the substance was shipped in agent orange is a chemical defoliant that selectively removes vegetation when sprayed or dusted on leaves and that means it is used to remove leaves from trees bushes shrubs, grasses, things like that. It was used by the U.S. military in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. Vietnam was not the only country that it was used in. It was also used in Laos and Cambodia, mainly near the Vietnam border. It was dusted and sprayed over huge swaths of jungles fields, and other, and other foliage types. The codename of this herbicidal warfare program was Operation Ranch Hand, and this herbicidal warfare was actually a vector of a scorched earth policy, and that scorched earth policy is a military strategy that aims to destroy anything that would potentially be useful to the enemy. In this case, the enemy was the Viet Cong and the South Vietnamese supporters of the Communist National Liberation Front operating in South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The use of the chemicals to execute this military strategy were actually not new. They had first made their appearance towards the end of World War II. As far as the public was informed, the goal of this strategy was to 
rob the Viet Cong of food sources and places to hide and ultimately save the lives of American soldiers. Unfortunately, while it did work during the war, the devastating impacts lingered in the areas of usage for long after the war had ended. Now let's take a look at some of the precursors that made the use of herbicides possible as a war tactic. During the 1940s in the United States, the herbicides that make up the rainbow herbicide group were already in use. And uses for these herbicides included weeding for industrial agriculture, taming vegetation along railroads and power lines, and controlling undergrowth in American forests. During the Vietnam War, the U.S. shifted the intended purpose of these chemicals and geared them more towards the war. In 1943, Arthur Galston, who had previously discovered the defoliants later used in Agent Orange, was contracted by the United States Department of the Army to study the effects of two herbicide components, and those were 2D4 acid and 2,4,5-T acid, and they were used on grains, which included rice and broadleaf crops. And these reflected crops that were generally raised in Asian countries. Now, for these studies, the concept of using aerial application to destroy enemy crops arose. The U.S. military actually procured 20 million gallons of Agent Orange from domestic companies, some of which were companies that we still know today, including the Diamond Shamrock Company out of Newark, New Jersey, Dow Chemical Company out of Midland, Michigan, and Monsanto Company out of Nitro, West Virginia. Now, Agent Orange is actually a concoction of several herbicides. It consists of a 50-50 mix of two phenoxy herbicides, which are 2,4-D acid and 2,4-5-T acid. The 2,4-5-T portion contained tetrachlorodibenzo-P-dioxin, commonly called TCDD. Now, this TCDD is part of a class of toxic chemicals called dioxins. According to the United Nations, dioxin is one of the most toxic substances known to man. At the time, the U.S. military claims it had no reason to believe that Agent Orange would be harmful outside of its intended purpose. The reasoning behind this was like I mentioned earlier, the use of herbicides in the context of war was nothing new. Allied forces had already been collaborating in exploring the applied uses of defoliating agents during and after World War II. In fact, in 1950, Britain used herbicides in Malaya, or present-day Malaysia. Now, Malaya was still a British colony at that time and herbicidal warfare was used to counter communist guerrilla forces during the Malayan Emergency. Now, this Malayan Emergency 
consisted of roadside ambushes by the Communist Malayan National Liberation Army, or MNLA, and these were a great danger to British troops. Because of the vegetation used by the National Liberation Army, the British had experimented with defoliants in order to take it away and annihilate food crops as well. The use of defoliants was ultimately dropped due to the cost and the manual removal of the leaves was favored. Nonetheless, a significant amount of additional research and development was compiled in the process by Britain on the use of defoliants in the context of war. And this information was consistently relayed to the U.S. In fact, journalist Judith Pereira and Andy Thomas from the New Scientist wrote an article in 1985 claiming that Britain had been cooperating closely with the U.S. in all areas of chemical and biological warfare research since 1942. Now, the leading agency in developing and testing these tactical herbicides was the U.S. Army Chemical Corps Research Laboratories at Fort Detrick, Maryland. All of this was actually summed up and editorialized in Pereira and Thomas's article. And they had this to say, the British experiments in Malaya established 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T as defoliants rather than anti-crop agents. They also showed that a combination of the two was more effective than either one alone, and that aerial application was the best means of dissemination. All of this information was duly conveyed to the U.S. In the last few months of the war in Korea, with information filtering through Britain, the U.S. actually began defoliation trials in Korea using a mixture of 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T. These trials were so successful that it revived the United States' own defoliation program. And so, with Britain's help, the stage had been set for the massive use of defoliants in Vietnam, which would end up being the ultimate testing ground for the military use of herbicides and Agent Orange in particular. Now, Britain and the U.S. had been toying with the idea of using herbicides as part of the war strategy prior to the Vietnam War, as I mentioned earlier. Britain had just set the precedence in the Malaya conflict. Now, during the Vietnam War, U.S. soldiers felt like they were being decimated by an invisible enemy, which the Viet Cong insurgents would attack and then swiftly retreat into dense jungle, and this created a climate of fear. In 1961, Echoing this sentiment, South Vietnamese President Gong Dinh Diem asked the United States to help defoliate the lush jungle that was facilitating the concealment of his enemies, which happened to be the communist Viet Cong. Citing the British precedent, President Kennedy was advised to proceed, as cited by Clyde Haberman in his article for the New York Times published in 2014, he had to say, 
to the political and military strategists in Washington, using vegetation-killing chemicals was a legally sound and necessary way to save American and South Vietnamese lives. So in short, many officials actually supported the use of defoliants as a war tactic. But the public's knowledge of the use of herbicides in the war actually hinged on certain beliefs. So one was the use of defoliants was meant to deprive communist insurgents of cover. The second belief was that it was meant to starve them out by decimating their crops. And the final, most important, was to save the lives of American soldiers as well as innocent Vietnamese civilians. So this was the pitch that the U.S. government relayed to the public. Ultimately, in 1962, Operation Ranch Hand had begun. The motto for the ranch hands, which were the soldiers executing the defoliant runs, was similar to that of the forest fire motto here in the U.S. You know that one that goes, only you can prevent forest fires? Yeah, well, theirs was a little bit different. It went like this. Only you can prevent a forest. And prevent a forest they did. As reiterated by, Sp by Scott Bucamp for his article in the Task and Purpose military blog, the difference with the use of Agent Orange lies in its scope, not in its concept. Now, the U.S. military ended up spraying nearly 20 million U.S. gallons of these chemicals over Southeast Asia, and this was just in a short period of about 10 years between 1961 and 1971. Earlier on, in 1962 to 1964, large-scale defoliation missions used Agent Green, Pink, and Purple, and these were the test years of Operation Ranch Hand. Now let's break down the actual test years of Operation Ranch Hand. So Agent Green was 100% in butyl ester, 2457, and they used approximately 8,200 gallons of this chemical. Now Agent Pink was 100% 245T, which is 60% in butyl ester 245T and 40% isobutyl ester 245T. So they're just tweaked chemical formulations of a butyl ester. And approximately 123,000 gallons was used of this chemical. And the last of the test year chemicals was Agent Purple. And Agent Purple was 50% 245T and 50% in-butyl ester of 24D. And they used approximately 144,000 gallons of this chemical. At the end of this testing run, the U.S. government decided that Agent Purple was actually the closest in consistency to Agent Orange. But they strove for something just a little bit more effective. And that's where, in 1965, the use of Agent Orange began. 
Now, Agent Orange is 50% in Butyl Ester 2,4-D and 50% in Butyl Ester 2,4-5-T. And the usage of this chemical far surpassed all chemicals used combined prior. And it was 11,700,000 gallons. Now, while that was the most widely and effective used chemical herbicide, there were two other fairly effective agents that were used, and those were Agent Blue and Agent White. Agent Blue was sprayed over the course of 1962 into 1971, and this one was used solely for crop destruction. And it is a mixture of 65.6% organic arsenical cocodylic acid and sodium salt cocodylate. And within that nine years of usage, 2,166,000 gallons were ultimately used. Now, finally, we get to Agent White, and that began replacing Agent Orange in 1966. It was 21.2% triisopropanolamine salts of 2,4-D and 5.7% picloram. And the remaining ingredients were inert binders and surfactants. And they ultimately used 5,240,000 gallons of this chemical. Now the goals of spraying herbicides in South Asia were to defoliate the jungle to expose the enemy and destroy their concealment options, remove brush around sensitive areas such as military bases, remove vegetation around roads and canals to avoid ambushes, and to decimate the food crops of insurgents. Now aside from using these chemicals for these purposes, there was another policy that was theorized and elaborated by Samuel P. Huntington in 1968 for an article in Foreign Affairs, and it explains the forced urbanization of the inhabitants of rural, newly deforested lands. Robbed of livelihoods and food sources, the support base for the Viet Cong would be eliminated. Samuel P. Huntington goes on to say, the Viet Cong is a powerful force which cannot be dislodged from its constituency so long as the constituency continues to exist. Peace in the future must be based on accommodation, direct application of mechanical and conventional power on such a massive scale as to produce a massive migration from countryside to city. And so reading this kind of implies another goal and this was to displace the support base of the Viet Cong to urban centers and it also implies that the Vietnamese civilians were strategically targeted or at least that their displacement was a welcomed effect. Now let's take a look at how the U.S. deployed these chemicals and to what extent they were ultimately used. Now, 95% of herbicides were deployed from low-flying C-123 cargo planes 
which had been outfitted with spraying equipment. And this equipment would be comprised of MC1 hourglass pump systems and 1,000 gallon chemical tanks. The remaining 5% of application was done by helicopters, trucks, boats, and by hand via backpack spreaders. Now, all in all, over 80 million liters of Agent Orange were applied. And this, of course, was spread out over 6,542 spraying missions within the Operation Ranch Hand. Overall, herbicides were sprayed on 24% of southern Vietnam. And that's 5 million acres of upland and mangroves that were destroyed, along with 500,000 acres of crops. Eventually, the public becomes aware of the use of herbicides and the fact that they are affecting Vietnamese civilians. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, the Vietnam War was in direct opposition to the growing anti-war, peace and love sentiment on American soil. And up until this point, the brutality and the scope of the herbicidal warfare program was not yet fully exposed to the American public. So the government initially held firm. The outward goal was always to turn the tide on the Viet Cong. And Agent Orange was pegged as relatively safe for humans and animals, according to the U.S. military. In 1962, the U.S. military began targeting food crops using Agent Blue, like I had discussed previously. In 1964, the Federation of American Scientists officially stated its opposition to the use of herbicides in Vietnam on the grounds that their use was not discriminating between fighting forces and civilians, and it also represented biological and chemical warfare. Arthur Galston, the man who actually discovered the defoliants and was later contracted by the U.S. Army to study their use, had also stated his ethical objections to the use of Agent Orange when he discovered the U.S. military's plan to use them in Vietnam. According to Coco and Verway, the American public was not made aware of the crop destruction programs until 1965, and it was then believed that crop spraying had begun that spring. In 1965, 42% of all herbicide spraying was dedicated to food crops. And at the same time, members of the U.S. Congress were told crop destruction is understood to be more important, a more important purpose. But the emphasis is usually given to the jungle defoliation in public mention of the program. So, essentially... Behind closed doors, those in charge know what is going on, but the public is being shown a very small side of the ultimate scheme at hand. It wasn't until March 1966 that the first official acknowledgement of the programs came from the State Department. 
Because crops were being destroyed, the Viet Cong would source food supplies from rural civilian villages. A 1967 analysis by the Rand Corporation, which is a military think tank, came to the conclusions that the civilian population seems to carry nearly the full burden of the crop destruction program. And it, it, it was and they estimated that over 500 civilians experience crop loss for every ton of rice denied to the Viet Cong. Now, according to the report by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, by 1970, they estimated 600,000 people had been disrupted by the defoliation campaign. As time passed, Agent Orange ultimately fell out of favor. A report compiled by Young and Reggiani in 1988 actually marks the beginning of public concern toward Agent Orange as starting in the fall of 1969. This report also said that Young and Reggiani were inclined to state the birthday of the Agent Orange history as a matter of public concern in the fall of 1969, when the results of a study commissioned by the National Institute of Health became known. Now, meanwhile, reports that Agent Orange had produced birth defects in humans had already been published in June of 1969 in Vietnamese newspapers. The National Institute of Health study that was just mentioned had been undertaken by Bionetics Research Laboratories in Bethesda, Maryland, and this study was conducted between 1965 and 1968, and it had discovered malformations in test animals caused by 245T. And the results of the Bionetics studies on mice seemed therefore to support the assumption that Agent Orange could cause birth deformities and propose a probable threat to man, as suggested by Vietnamese newspapers. As early as 1966, resolutions were introduced by the United Nations charging that the U.S. was violating the 1925 Geneva Protocol by using chemical and biological weapons. Now, the U.S. defeated most of these resolutions, stating that the British had set precedence during the Malayan Emergency Conflict. In 1969, U.N. Resolution Number 2603A declared that the use of chemical agents in a manner used by the U.S. in Vietnam was a violation of the 1925 Geneva Protocol and deemed a war crime. The UN General Assembly actually passed this resolution by a vote of 82-3. Moving on a year, in 1970, the American Association for the Advancement of Science set up a commission of four scientists with the task of assessing the effects of large-scale use of herbicides on the ecology and the population of South Vietnam. In December of that same year, the scientists had this to say, quote, 
The herbicide sprayed in South Vietnam had destroyed the vegetation of the territory and the food which was needed by the civilian population, but also there was the possibility that either or both 245T and its associated dioxin had caused birth defects in the population of that region. Aside from the American Association for Advancement of Sciences study, three others were also conducted. One was by the Ministry of Health of the Republic of South Vietnam, and they looked at maternity hospital records of 22 hospitals over the 10-year period from 1960 to 1970. And they showed that no differences in the incidence and frequency of stillbirths and congenital malformations were found. But the study had been shown to have several biases because birth records were not very reliable. Now the second of these studies was by a committee appointed by the National Academy of Sciences once again. Now, this committee conducted a comparative study and investigation to determine the ecological and biological dangers deriving from the use of herbicides and of the defoliation program carried out by the Department of Defense in South Vietnam. And this report was submitted to the government in February of 1974, and it also found no evidence substantiating the occurrence of herbicide-induced defects. But it should be noted that at the time of the report's submission, the most definitive aspect of the examination had not yet been completed. So I'm not really sure why, but they submitted an unfinished report to the government and drew conclusions from that. Now, the final study was directed by the To Tang Tung director of the Vai Du Hospital in Hanoi, North Vietnam, and was published in 1971. And this was a group of 903 South Vietnamese exposed to herbicides in the north showed a high frequency of Down syndrome and malformed children. So it's interesting to see that the studies and reports coming out of Vietnam are showing that these chemicals caused malformed children, Down syndrome, and stillbirths, but every other report from international and other national groups are showing that there's no connection. Now, like I just briefly mentioned earlier, the American Association of Advancement of Sciences had already came out and said that there was a connection between these herbicides and dioxin in particular and birth defects. And they went on to adopt a resolution which stated that recent studies had shown that both 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T could cause birth deformities in experimental animals thus supporting the conclusion that 245T posed a threat to public health, while 24D was possibly dangerous. 
Now, these studies were brought to the attention of the White House in 1969, and on April 15, 1970, it was announced that the use of Agent Orange would be suspended. And it really wasn't long after that the defoliation and crop destruction was actually completely stopped in June of 1971. Now that we kind of have some history of the herbicides, I would like to get into the health impact. Now, the chemical components that make up Agent Orange and the rainbow herbicides were already being used domestically, as I stated in the beginning of this episode. The use of tactical herbicides like Agent Orange and the rainbow herbicides was not new. What was new was the scope of the application of Agent Orange, and so This includes the size of the territory that was affected, the quantities that were used, and the frequency of use. The second act of Agent Orange history is the implication that TCDD, which remember is dioxin, present in the 2,4,5-T acid was actually highly toxic to humans. So another factor into the scope of the application of Agent Orange was the concentration levels of Agent Orange were sometimes 50 times more elevated than the actual recommended dosages. So the scope of use of Agent Orange during the war affecting both the Vietnamese people and veterans returning home were as follows. The Vietnamese, both those fighting for the North and the South, as well as civilians, according to the government of Vietnam, they make the claims that 4 million of its citizens have been exposed to Agent Orange, and 3 million people have birth defects or other health problems directly related to dioxin. Now, when it comes to the Red Cross, which is an NGO, they claim that 3 million people have been affected by a dioxin, including at least 150,000 children born with serious birth defects. But the United States doesn't really legitimize any of these claims and states that they are unreliable. In a study titled Long-Term Health Impact of Agent Orange, Evidence from the Vietnam War by D.T. Lee, T.M. Pham, and S. Polachek, published in March of 2022, states the following findings. Significant linkage between a wartime herbicide exposure and detrimental health outcomes of Vietnam civilians a standard deviation increase in herbicide exposure yielded a 19.75% greater likelihood of having a related health issue. Significant effects are associated with altered blood pressure, disease, and mobility impairments. And finally, the effects predominant in children, infants, and those in utero before the herbicide missions ended. The war officially ended in 
1945. But veterans were coming home long before then, and even after then. It's estimated that 2.5 million soldiers were exposed to the chemicals used in the herbicidal warfare strategy of the Vietnam War. At the time, most soldiers had a typical tour of duty that lasted a minimum of one year. And following the war or following their deployments, some veterans began to develop health problems and in time, more and more veterans reported serious illness and claimed that their children were being born with birth defects. It was in 1977 that veterans actually began to file claims at different offices of the Veterans Administration, stating that they suspect their illnesses were born out of the exposure to Agent Orange. One such office was the Chicago branch of the VA, where a woman named Maude DeVictor worked as a benefits counselor. In 1977, DeVictor was contacted by the wife of Charles Owen, a Vietnam veteran who believed his terminal cancer was the result of his exposure to Agent Orange. After learning that Charles had succumbed to his illness and that the VA had refused his widow's claim, DeVictor began doing some digging. She reached out to Alvin L. Young, a major in the U.S. Air Force, who was a specialist in plant physiology. DeVictor did this because she wanted to know what types of herbicides were actually used, and Young responded to her question explaining the use and toxicity of Agent Orange, which DeVictor recorded. Once she had discovered this, she began noting that there was a pattern of cancers and other illnesses suffered by these Vietnam veterans, and she was able to link this exposure to Agent Orange. When the VA got wind of what she was doing, they asked her to cease any investigation at once and focus on her duties, but nevertheless, she persisted. Here's what happened next, as quoted by a report by the Institute of Medicine. Soon after someone contacted Bill Curtis, a local television reporter, about DeVictor's inquiries on veterans' exposure to Agent Orange. On March 23, 1978, WBBM, a CBS affiliate in Chicago, aired Curtis's documentary, Agent Orange, The Deadly Fog. Subsequently, local and national media began to report on Agent Orange and veterans' complaints with more frequency. And it was at this point the floodgates had been opened. In early 1978, Paul Ruddershan went on the Today Show, and Paul was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and he recounted how he would routinely fly through clouds of herbicides being sprayed by C-123 bombers. He went on to talk about how he watched the jungles and mangroves get decimated by Agent Orange. But most pugnant of all was what he said in regards to his own health, which was of no concern at the time. 
I died in Vietnam, but I didn't even know it. Moving on, the U.S. Army had insisted that Agent Orange was relatively non-toxic to humans and animals. Unfortunately, Paul Rudderson died of cancer that year. It had invaded his colon, liver, and abdomen, and he was only 28 years old. Now back to this IOM report, prior to his death, Paul Rudderson had read a news account about Maude DeVictor's data correlating health problems in Vietnam veterans and exposure to Agent Orange. It continues on saying, Convinced that he had identified the cause of his illness, he contacted Edward Gorman, a personal injury lawyer on Long Island, and requested that he file a suit in a New York court naming Dow, Monsanto, and Diamond Shamrock as defendants. Now remember, these were the chemical companies that manufactured the ingredients for Agent Orange. In 1979, Ruddershin's complaints was upgraded to a class action lawsuit named Agent Orange Product Liability Suit and was ultimately settled out of court for $180 million. Now the plaintiffs, of course, never publicly accepted any responsibility and cited immunity as military contractors. So conflicting statements by companies like Dow suggest that, to a degree, both the companies and the government were aware of the dangers of the chemicals used on account of the presence of dioxin. According to a quote from 1983 in the New York Times article on the subject by David Burnham, he claims the Dow Chemical Company maintains that at least two years before the United States halted the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam in 1971, both the Defense Department and the company were aware of evidence indicating that dioxin might cause birth defects in the children of women exposed to the defoliant. He further says that Dow stated in court papers that by 1969, the company and the government were aware of a National Cancer Institute study showing that dioxin caused birth defects in mice. And the unusual contention by the chemical company that had earlier knowledge of the dangers of dioxide is part of what is known as a government contractor defense. So if Dow can prove that it manufactured the herbicide according to defense department specifications and that both parties were aware of the hazards, then the company could not be held liable for any damages that may have been caused by the herbicide. And lastly, he reports that the company said the government continued to spray the dioxin-contaminated herbicide in Vietnam despite evidence of the potential danger because the defoliation program was regarded as a military necessity, which meant the government justified the program as a method of denying the Viet Cong food and of clearing areas around American bases. In other words, both the government and the companies knew of the health hazards of dioxin and its presence in the chemicals used 
to create these herbicides. The lawsuit also raised the issue that dioxin was perhaps contaminating people domestically. When it came down to Vietnam, the government actually dragged its feet when it came to claiming responsibility. And I'll give you a brief timeline of bills and laws passed that facilitated the care of veterans. In 1981, medical treatment was first provided with the congressional passing of the Veterans Health Care Training and Small Business Loan Act. In 1984, financial compensation came through the Veterans Dioxin and Radiation Exposure Compensation Standards Acts. This was nice, but there was a lack of scientific consensus at the time. Congress had later passed several measures to address the issues of disability compensations that affected Vietnam veterans. The Agent Orange Act of 1991 stated Veterans Affairs was contracted with the Institute of Medicine, which is now the National Academy of Sciences, to compensate veterans according to regular scientific findings. The National Academy of Sciences was to publish new findings every two years. And I have a list of several of those findings. Now, the first list I have consists of diseases and conditions presumptively service-connected with exposure to that Agent Orange. In this list, I'll give the name of the disease or condition and when the published date was. So, for this Agent Orange, findings for chloracne were published in 1994. Also in 1994 was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, soft tissue sarcoma, and Hodgkin's disease. Now in 2003, chronic lymphocytic leukemia was published, and in 2009, chronic B-cell leukemia was published. When it came to limited or suggestive evidence of association to Agent Orange, there was a longer list. The first was respiratory cancer, which was lung, bronchies, larynx, and trachea. And these findings were published in 1994. Also in 1994 was multiple myeloma, porphyria cutana tarda. In 1996, just two years later, published findings were for prostate cancer, early onset peripheral neuropathy, and spina bifida in the children of exposed veterans. Now, there weren't any other study findings released until the year of 2000, and in 2000, they found limited or suggestive evidence for type 2 diabetes. Now, six years later, they discovered limited and suggestive evidence for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is ALS. If you all remember the ALS ice bucket challenge, that's what that ALS stands for. 
a year later, for some reason, they didn't go every two years. They decided to go one year. They discovered a connection with AL amyloidosis. And finally, in 2009, they discovered ischemic heart disease and Parkinson's disease. So jumping back a bit, in 1995, diplomatic relationships with Vietnam were sort of normalized. But it wasn't until 2012 that cleaning projects were inaugurated in places such as U.S. air bases in Vietnam. Ultimately, it was decided that in order to make Agent Orange history, the remediation of hotspots needed to be undertaken in places other than U.S. air bases. In this sense, the diplomatic relations between Vietnam also went by way of ecological remediation. Unfortunately, this doesn't change the fact that American veterans and the people of Southeast Asia still suffer with the long-term effects of the Agent Orange to this day. Aside from human health effects, the impact of Agent Orange on the ecology of Vietnam cannot be understated. Dioxin was identified as a persistent organic polluter, or POP, by the Environmental Protection Agency. Dioxin can remain in the soil long after the initial contamination. According to the study titled Long-Term Fate of Agent Orange and Dioxin TCDD Contaminated Soils and Sediments in Vietnam Hotspots by Kenneth Olson and Louis W. Morton, while the compound itself has a half-life of only a few weeks after application, the dioxin it contains persists in surface soils for 1 to 15 years and in subsurface soils for up to 100 years. And it should be noted that hot spots containing high levels of dioxin have been identified such as around the U.S. air bases of Bien Ho and Da Nang. Now, the long-lasting effects of this dioxin in the ecology of Vietnam have been permanent deforestation, soil erosion from that deforestation, flooding, widespread loss of mangrove forests, the emergence of invasive plants and animals, loss of the region's ability to store carbon, changes to the local climate, and loss of biodiversity. It's estimated that between 1956 and 1970, 30% of mangrove forests in southern Vietnam were destroyed. Grasslands and bamboo ended up replacing the large trees, and these are actually invasive species. According to an article by David M. Kuchta for Treehugger, unlike dense forests, grasslands and shrublands have lower rates of evapotranspiration. They take up less water from the soil and release less of it through their leaves. Less water uptake by plants increases runoff and erosion, sending more silt and pollution into waterways. Less evaporation means less cloud cover, less rain, and drier air, 
which increases ambient temperatures and warms the planet. Furthermore, forests, including mangrove forests, are important carbon sinks and among the world's most threatened ecosystems. Without adequate tree cover or deep root systems, erosion helps distribute dioxin in soils further than the initial source of contamination. Stepping back for a second, we can look at Kenneth Olson and Louis W. Morton's study just a little bit more. It indicates that dioxin made its way into waterways near those U.S. air bases that were highly contaminated. And they state, Bianho Air Force Base, 40 kilometers northeast of Ho Chi Minh City, continues to be one of the mega hotspots where after 48 years of the dioxin TCDD levels in fish and shrimp are still high and fishing is banned in ponds and lakes adjacent to the airbase. Now, there is no doubt that was a lot of information, so let me kind of recap a little bit. Clyde Haberman pointedly says in his New York Times article, there is no shortage of programs initially deemed essential and safe only to produce unwelcome consequences. And this reflects the use of Agent Orange. Initially, it was deemed essential and safe to use, but ultimately it produced very unwelcomed and long-lasting consequences. Such that it appears that the price paid for wanting to overcome the enemy in Vietnam is still being paid for to this day. Now, the true price was paid by the Vietnamese civilians and American veterans, as well as the natural systems affected by the contamination of dioxin. At the end of the day, it begs the question, were the consequences worth it. I'm hoping there was something in this episode for all of us to take away. I know there was some information in there that I was not aware of before doing this episode. Before I head out, I would like to thank my researcher and writer, Chloe Kibbe. She's doing a wonderful job, and I look forward to to keep on working with her up for next week we are crossing the pacific and landing in japan on march 11 2011 the largest earthquake ever recorded in japan causes massive devastation and the ensuing tsunami decimates the tohoku region of northeastern honshu on top of the already horrific destruction and loss of life, the natural disaster also gives rise to a nuclear disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. The Fukushima disaster is considered the second worst nuclear disaster in history, forcing the relocation of over 100,000 people. Make sure to tune in next week. It's going to be another great episode. And as always, thank you for listening.